Welcome to We'll Always Have Paris, a podcast that dissects and discusses culture's best and worst love stories set in the city we call home. I'm Rachel Kapelke-Dale, author of several novels, including The Ingenue and The Ballerinas. And I'm Nafkote Tambarat, author of The Parking Lot Attendant. And I'm Chris Newens. I'm a journalist and non-fiction writer. Today on the pod, we'll start out with This Week in Love, a segment that brings you up to date on what's been on our minds this week in the world of romance. Today, we discuss The Guardian's list of the top literary cads. Vampires, swans, and Jilly Cooper all make appearances. Then it's time for The Love Story, the segment where we do a deep dive into a classic Paris-based love story from fact or fiction to figure out whether it works and if we buy it. Today we'll be talking about Nancy Mitford's The Blessing. I get my dream job of explaining the bonkers Mitford family. We reveal the secret identity of the Duchess of Devonshire. And we discuss Mitford's moral philosophy about being a bore. Finally, we'll round things off with a game of Marry, Fuck, Kill, the segment in which we apply the classic slumber party game to the characters from our main love story. This time, the debate includes whether it's hotter to be really nice or to own a car. This podcast contains explicit language and discusses adult themes. The Blessing in particular contains a number of offensive descriptions of various people. We will avoid mentioning those to the extent possible in today's episode, but we thought it was important to warn potential readers about these before approaching the novel. Please listen with care. Thanks for joining us. Now, here's this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Welcome to This Week in Love, the segment where we tell you what's been on our minds romance-wise over the past week. Chris, this was your week to come up with a This Week in Love segment. So what have you been thinking about? Thanks, Rachel. So this week, I was looking around and I saw there was an article in The Guardian this week in which the top 10 cads in fiction were rated finally (laughs) finally i want this person's job (laughs) how can we murder them this this is charlotte vassal is her name we're not coming for you charlotte vassal but i will i'm gonna read the little bit under the the head dangerously handsome young men carelessly ruining women's lives are a rarer breed than they were but their hatefulness still makes compelling reading And Chris thought, oh, my God, I didn't realize I've been doing so much damage. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Fundamentally lovable, though, right? Uh, You want to read about cads. So anyway, I was just going to put it out there. Obviously, we've got the list and it's it's going to be very controversial. And I don't expect you to come up with 10. But I'm wondering if off the top of your heads, you can come up with any cads in fiction. Don Juan, or as the French call him, Don Juan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, does Heathcliff count as a cad? I did think Heathcliff, yeah, but I mean... But it, but I don't know why. That, that was the first name that came to me. I'm sure he's not going to make the list, but I think Mr. Rochester is a real... You got a yeah. wife in the attic. Yeah. Oh, what's his face from Bridget Jones's Diary? I don't remember his character's name, oh. but Hugh Grant. Yes, he makes the list. Daniel, Daniel Cleaver! Yes. <laughs> We've yeah, both watched this movie right. many a time. <laughs> and, and his corresponding Pride and Prejudice. Oh, of course. No, uh, Sense and Sensibility, right? Was Hugh Grant in? No, 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 not, not uh, Hugh Grant. Uh, uh, Naf is, oh, yes. is closer with Sense and Sensibility. Ooh. Uh, Wickham? Uh, Willoughby. Willoughby. In Sense and Sensibility. Yeah. I have to say there are a lot of books on this list which I have not read personally. Have you not read Jane Austen? Oh, well, I know what you're doing on your break. (laughs) Doesn't know Beyonce, doesn't know Jane Austen. The list is getting damning. Wait, hold on. She's like in pop, right? Absolutely, yeah. You're doing really well. She used to be in that band. (laughs) All Saints, you've heard of it, right? (laughs) Never, ever, ever. (laughs) She was the white member. Come on. Please, Chris, keep up. (laughs) A little bit weird looking. She was yeah. always she was the one that was a painting instead of a photograph. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So who else? Who else would be on the list? Yeah. Let's, um, 
Oh, can I ask you a question? Is the is the list mostly classic literature or contemporary or a mix of both? It's a mix of both. I'd say there's a tendency towards classic literature. Okay. Um, I know that one of Rachel's favorite authors is in there. Rupert Campbell Black. That's number three on the list. You literally, you literally... <laughs> Um, Rachel, maybe you could explain to the listeners and me who Rupert Campbell Black is. Rupert Campbell Black is the best imaginary sex of my life. He <laughs> perfect, perfect opening. Yes, First appears in, 19, in the 1970s Riders by Jilly Cooper. He is a consummate horseman who <laughs> I later found out is based on Camilla's ex-husband Andrew Parker Bowles. So once you find that out, the image you have, and she's like, he's this blonde god, and then you see this like very mousy. Just gonna Google what? What was his name? Andrew Parker Bowles. Andrew Parker Bowles. Didn't you grow up in England? Didn't you ever go to a supermarket and see a magazine? <laughs> Hello? I mean, one of them is called Hello, no? <laughs> it wakes you up. <laughs> but anyway, within the books, he's horrible at first. He beats his horses. Oh. Yeah. And you know, for me, that's, uh, that's I could barely keep reading. The Absolutely book. break up with him. Um, yeah. He marries this redheaded uh, American, mostly because she's like a novel sexual experience for him. She, he doesn't turn her on, even though he is a blonde god. And so he instead just goes around fucking everybody else in sight with his cock, which is, I believe, at one point described like a cricket bat. Wow. And, um, <laughs> um, wow. <laughs> But then, and then you go through the... <laughs> One English penis. <laughs> oh, he's... He, every part of him is the most English. From his tongue, which never goes below the neck, to, <laughs> to his cock, which uh, is a bit of a sticky wicket. <laughs> sounds like a strange shape as well. Also, excellent cricket terminology. Yeah, I'm really proud I'm so of you. No, I'm not sure that's how she actually describes it, but that is the kind of metaphor that Jilly Cooper right, uses. Right. So what do we think of the redeemed cad then? I will say for me as a reader, it's such a delightful character trope, especially when it comes to romance novels, because I'm sure they're not on the list, but I was just thinking of romance series that I've begun recently, and there's always a reformed cad. And usually if it's supernatural, they are a vampire, which always in romance means hot because they're tall, they're thin, they're super pale, they have dark hair. So it's the contrast between the skin color and the hair color. I love it. The, the good vampire is the ultimate redeemed cad. Absolutely. When you get a vampire and they go from bad to good, everybody, you've done your job. <laughs> I mean, that is the fantasy. Is a vampire not just a colonizer when you're like, why is he so white? Like, yes. he's, he's creep His skin is creepy and his eyes look weird. He's not sleeping. <laughs> and he wants to make me like him. He will not let me live my life. Oh, his teeth are literally in my neck. Uh-oh. Oh, I have to assimilate to your blood-sucking culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But hot. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa. This is our post-colonial reading of <laughs> the Guardian's top 10 cads in fiction. We still have not listened to. We've just given our ideas. Ooh, but I was thinking because you said Helen, Rachel, Paris from The Myth. He's such a cad. He's a great one. Uh, played by Orlando Bloom in the movie. Oh. Um, Lita and the Swan. The Swan. Yeah. <laughs> Swans, the original cads. Swans are cats. Swans are the worst. They're, if you go to Kensington Gardens and you go by the pond there, what's it called? The round pond. They're very inventive with me. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's either like round, round pond. Table, round pond. <laughs> round pond, water pond. I don't know. It's called something like that. And there are signs that are just like, don't let your dogs off the leash. Swans killed three dogs last year. And you're like, wait, what? The swans killed the dogs? They're so violent. I've seen a swan grab the rest of a sandwich from a friend's hand. It was violent. Um, also, Spare confirmed for me something that my friend Flo told me, which is that all swans in England are technically under the queen's guardianship. Yes, we all know that. That, that is... When she told me that, I laughed uproariously, and I thought to myself, <laughs> uh, silly, that can't be the case. No, it's real. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Um, when you're young, the first things you learn about swans are they can break a man's arm and the the king owns all of them well the queen owns all of them. the crown the crown yeah the yes, crown the, the, sorry 
Yes, they're owned by the crown. The non-binary crown owns the <laughs> swans. So effectively, they, they can viciously attack you and you're not allowed to fight back. So you're saying that swans are number one on the list. Yeah. Swan, the number one literary cad. <laughs> <laughs> the, the concept of swan. <laughs> Did NAFCO do it this list? <laughs> I'm going to run through the other cads yes, on the list. Oh, this is exciting. So number four is Simon Doyle in Death on the Nile. Um, I haven't read that book. Oh, an Agatha Christie cad can only ever just be kind of rude. Yeah, that's it. I wonder who played him in the movie, which I did watch, unfortunately. See, but we both watched it and yeah. we don't know. So yeah. well, Hold on, was Army Hammer in that movie? Archie Hammer. Oh, oh, no, Army Hammer. Yeah. Where was I getting Archie Hammer from? I don't know. Maybe you were hoping that one existed who didn't want to eat people's flesh. There we go. I think that's what I was hoping for. Yep, Army Hammer was in that. Yeah. I mean, he could play a cad in a kind of creepy way. I don't know. Mm. Yeah, it's pushing the definition of cad, but (laughs) (laughs) number nine. Unlike swans and vampires. (laughs) Well, they don't actually want to eat you. They just want to (laughs) maim slash feed from you, but let you live. Whereas he's just like... Yeah, I I don't want this to be an Army Hammer exactly. podcast. Uh, Alec Durbeville in Tess of the Durbevilles. Wow. I was going to say, but I've never actually read it. I've read it, but I read it in high school. I don't remember anything from it. Okay. Tom Buchanan in The Great Gatsby. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah, he's a he's a cad push like. I feel like there are there's some Venn diagram that I'm going yeah. to have to make that's like cad asshole. Yes. And he's like at the perfect intersection of the two. And there are definitely categories of cads. And I think that the category... Uh, categories, if you will. Yeah. Oh, we, we will not. <laughs> but you will. And I'm glad you did. I'm really glad you did. But definitely like the American cad is best exemplified by Tom Buchanan. Blustery, loud, always showing off a shiny new object. Yeah, absolutely. James Steerforth in David Copperfield. Don't remember that book at all. Me neither. Yeah. Okay, we can Thanks, cut that. Thanks, English major. <laughs> uh, yeah, also Henry Wilcox in Howard's End. Never read it. Arthur Donathorne in Adam Bede. Showing off now. Um, finally is William Rackham in The Crimson Petal and The White. She made that up. What? William, pompous and comfortable heir to a perfume business, he does sound quite caddish, is convinced of his literary genius and revels in his caddish ways. <laughs> I do kind of want to read it now. I think I've met him. Yeah. <laughs> At home, he has a small daughter, a small daughter, whom he ignores, and a delicate Victorian doll of a wife whose grasp of reality is hanging by a thread. I need to watch Aren't, this movie. Aren't ours all? <laughs> But wait, in a flat in another part of London, he has Sugar, an intelligent prostitute. <laughs> but but the important question is, does she have a heart of gold? Well, it doesn't say. He's, it just That's says I want to know. It just says that he bought her from her madam. Prostitutes only get one good quality. Either you have a heart of gold or you're intelligent. You don't get both. God forbid. You can't. You can't be three-dimensional in a prostitute. That just that's a rule of literature. It's too much. And to be sweet as in sugar? No. That's that's literally three dimensions. And we can't who who, who has the time? Who has the time? <laughs> it's balance, everybody balance. Fortunately, I think you know, she says that Rackham, my italics like all cads, gets his comeuppance in the most satisfying way. Somebody murders him while he's coming. <laughs> That's what I, I want. I want a knife in the back. That's what I want. Well, I don't. I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> I'm laughing at Chris's real shocked reaction because because I think I I yeah you were really like whoa. I just think that's a bit direct, isn't it? His the most satisfying way is yeah the most direct way. Because I, I mean I, say... I guess the most satisfying way would be immediately after he comes, but satisfying for the reader would be like right. he's about to come and he never gets perpetual <laughs> blue balls in hell. <laughs> I would assume that his most the most satisfying way would be if Sugar gets into a relationship with his Victorian doll of a wife and he gets cast out into the street. Oh, I like that Amazing. too. Amazing. What year was this written? I no, I'm, I I don't know if that's what happens. That's just what I would imagine <laughs> really the most satisfying century. comeuppance is. Wow. Yeah. No. I definitely the most satisfying. I thought murder. Right. <laughs> we can so, cut there. So right. Interesting. <laughs> So now it's time for the love story. This week, we're going to be talking about Nancy Mitford's The Blessing. Okay, so Nancy Mitford, you guys, I've been grinning all day at the opportunity to talk to you about her. 
So the Mitfords, can you imagine? She's a fancy English lady. From anybody who's read the excellent book, Watching the English, the older the family, the weirder the family. (laughs) So Nancy Mitford grew up in big crumbling houses in the Cotswolds, which is in, if I can get Chris to pronounce this for me, the county of the Cotswolds are in the, are in? Oxfordshire? I don't know. No. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. Goodbye, Chris. (laughs) We'll find someone else. (laughs) So... I'm still here. (laughs) (laughs) So they grew up in these big crumbling houses in the Cotswolds, which are... Gloucestershire. (laughs) They are, or as I called it when I first moved to England, Gloucester. (laughs) No one's perfect. Their father was... David Bertram Ogilvy Freeman Mitford, who was the second Baron Reedsdale, he was prone to fits of rage when he hated somebody. And and this part, there, there's a lot about David that I can't get behind. This part I really feel, when he hated somebody, he'd write their name in a drawer, stick a pin in it, and just hope they'd die. Mm. And I, I I really enjoy that about him. I fucking love it. And I also love that he might have thought he invented voodoo. <laughs> I'm off to check Rachel's drawers. <laughs> the best we can say about his politics is that he was slightly to the left of Hitler. We're going to get more to that. That's not an exaggeration. To the left of Hitler. At least to the left, though. To the left, to the left. <laughs> to the... What? Exactly. <laughs> Once again, we're so sorry. On Nancy's birth certificate, Nancy was the firstborn child. He listed his occupation as honorable. Which, <laughs> you know what? I'm not mad at that. I'm really not mad at that. Uh, for, for those who did not read Debrett's in preparation for someday marrying Prince William, which didn't happen. <laughs> an honorable. I think about it every day. An, uh, you get the title of honorable when you are the child of a peer, somebody with a title. So that goes before your name, like doctor, as though it were something you'd earned. I mean, I'm the first child of a mechanic. I feel like I'm semi-honorable. You are. That is how we have you build on the podcast. Oh my God, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) So we know that Nancy's the oldest of the infamous Mitford sisters. They are so infamous even in their lifetime that Sydney at one point said, whenever I see a headline beginning with Piers' daughter, I know one of you children has been in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) And that was correct. They were not not in trouble. (laughs) So Nancy, obviously, is a novelist. We're going to get way more into her later. Mm. Jessica, known as Decca, becomes a communist early on and journalist and nonfiction writer. They are the only two in the family who refuse to meet Hitler, which is an actual thing. Right. Yeah. Diana, on the other hand, becomes, first of all, the wife of Brian Guinness. But while she's married to him, she becomes the mistress and then the wife of married Oswald Mosley, who is the founder and leader of the British Union of Fascists. Hitler comes to their wedding. Then there's Unity Unity Mitford, who is, if you're unfamiliar, the actual member of the Nazi party of this family. It's a great name, unfortunately. Stolen forever. Right. Well, and do you know what her middle name was, Chris? No, I do not. It's Valkyrie. No! Yeah, and uh, so she was always very hopeful for Britain and England not going to war against each other, her home country and her adopted Germany and England. Or Germany and Britain. What did I say? You said Britain and England. They could go to war against each other. Watch Outlander. (laughs) (laughs) Scotland hates you. Scotland hates me. (laughs) Specifically. Oh, dear. When Britain declared war on Germany, she actually went to a public park and shot herself. Now, Deborah, the youngest daughter, had a slightly happier story. She married the Duke of Devonshire, died in 2014, age 94. This is a small flex, but I believe that my uncle knew her. To a reading that she gave in London because I was there in 2014. She's my godmother. We all have a <laughs> I made out with her once. What are the odds, you know? Okay, we're only on page two of the notes, you guys. I, gotta I am Deborah <laughs> Now, Nancy 
has this wicked, she's the oldest, she's a Sagittarius, and God knows I love a Sagittarius. Yeah. She's got a wicked sense of humor that verges on nasty. She finds her first sibling to be the Pamela after her to be a horrible surprise and it just gets worse from there <laughs> so she's living in London as a young woman she's part of this bright young things set so before we go any further I'm wondering Chris based on the information you have so far what do you think that Nancy Mitford sounds like is there is, is there something I can read in uh, Nancy Mitford's the begin the beginning of the blessing the foreign gentleman seems to be in a terrible hurry, dear. And indeed the house. They're quite large. What used to be called a family house in Queen's Anne Gate was filled with sounds of impatience. Somebody was stamping about, moving furniture, throwing windows up and down and clearing his throat exaggeratedly. Okay, so excellent, excellent work, Chris. That, I mean, that, that... that was quite good. So if you're wondering, this is what Nancy Mitford actually sounds like. Oh, yes. Oh, oh yes. I've always needed money. <laughs> Terribly. Entirely earn my living. I haven't got any money except what I am at all. At an early stage, you had to earn Yes. Well, I didn't have to earn my living. If I wanted anything extra to go to the south of France or buy clothes or anything. I had to earn it, you see. Okay, so not a bad impression on Chris's part. That was impeccable. <laughs> Absolutely. Like you channeled Nancy. <laughs> yeah. I, I felt like a different person when I was doing that. So, but yeah, so Nancy's living in London. She's a bright young thing. She's friends with people like Evelyn Wow. Mm. <laughs> Evelyn Wow. I can't say that. I actually have no idea how to say his last name. Wow. War. I think so, yeah. She's friends with Evelyn War. I mean, not, like, yeah. not quite like that, no. I don't know. <laughs> she's friends with Evelyn War, and she's engaged for, like, too long a time to a man who is actually gay. For whatever reason, doesn't want to actually marry her, but just wants to be engaged for a really long time. And it's like, I get it on both of their parts. And he has a comically British name, which is Hamish, I'm assuming, Sinclair. Erskine. Just sounds like a name. Aww, <laughs> yeah, baby. <laughs> so we called our dog. Um, <laughs> yeah. Her rebound relationship is actually her husband, Peter Rod. He is defined as his, <laughs> his job is described as idler. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not the problem this time. No, I am 100% the problem, but actually it's Peter Rod. Oh, no, it's both of you. Peter Rod is, is described as an idler uh, in the first line of his biography on Wikipedia. Biographer Lisa Hilton calls him the most boring man in England. This doesn't last long. He takes a lot of her money. It's not great. Oh, fuck that. She does have several affairs. At a certain point early in the war, she is working at a London bookshop where she meets Gaston Poleski who is a French colonel attached to General Charles de Gaulle's London staff and eventually heads his cabinet once he is uh, president. And they begin an affair. She has a relationship with him on and off for the rest of her life. So Gaston is not a looker. He's supposed to have had very bad breath. This is reported from multiple sources. But soon after they meet, he leaves for Algeria. He is, after all, you know, an important political figure. And so she's writing book five, Pursuit of Love, and has a huge surprising success. She sells 200,000 copies mm. in the first year. He shows up in her books first as Fabrice, the Duc de Sauveterre, who is the womanizing hero, if you want to call it that, of The Pursuit of Love. And uh, is apparently there to the life. He took no offense at this depiction. And when Mitford wanted to dedicate the pursuit of love to the colonel, as she called him, he insisted on his real name being used. So it's actually dedicated to him. By 1946, she's like, I'm moving to France forever. Her entire day is scheduled around his schedule. She writes, she writes more novels. She writes biographies. So let's talk about the blessing. Ooh, let's. So the blessing is about 
lovely English Rose, Grace Allingham, who's the daughter of some noble guy. She is none too bright. A French soldier shows up to deliver a message from her fiancé, Huey, who's off fighting in Cairo during World War II, but instead ends up taking her out. His name, Charles-Edouard mm -hmm. de Valhubert. Within a month, they get married, but not in a church, and that's going to be him. That's going to be a big plot point. Yeah. <laughs> He goes back to war. It is implied that before this, he is very excellent at sex. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> she has become pregnant. So she gives birth, not to a child, but to a garbage monster. Yeah. Surprisingly. Yeah. Who is technically called Sigismond. Uh, sorry, it's, look this up. I wrote it out and I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry, that's not on you. That's on this fucking bitch kid. Keep it in. <laughs> His name is Sigi Simon. So it's not actually Siggy as everybody reads it because we're reading in English. And as they say in the movie, by the way, they call him Siggy. <gasps> it's wrong. Yeah. It's, I listened to the actual audiobook. They have kindly said they will come here for Christmas. It's chiefly on account of Sigismond. Sweet Sigi, fascinating child, said Philip, with a good deal of feeling. We asked a fancy French friend his opinion on this name, and he said, I've never heard anybody called by that name. Because <laughs> it's a stupid name a stupid for a stupid kid. A stupid name for the worst child in the world. God! That's how we came up with the alternate titles for the, this episode. Mine was What you what to Expect When You're Expecting a Sigi. Naps was even better, which was... <laughs> We need to talk about Siji. <laughs> and they do. And we do. So here it goes. Basically, Grace and the baby are just happy in the country at this place laughably called Bunbury out in the country for years. And then the war ends and everything goes to shit. Charles Edouard comes back. Siggy's like six, seven years old. And he's like, we've got to go to France. He's a French child. And the nanny is not happy about anything that happens in this book, really, but especially about this immediate move to France. So they go to the countryside with Charles Edouard's elderly aunts and their priest. Things go totally fine. Grace adjusts. They're still in the countryside. It's great. But then Charles Edouard insists on going to Paris and trouble begins. And so what do we think about Grace, first of all? Grace is tough because on the one hand, I always feel like with Nancy Mitford protagonists, her female protagonists, the idea is they are unstudied, they didn't go to formal education, and we're supposed to always see a contrast between kind of natural intelligence versus this kind of very elegant, studied, uh, I'm putting in big, big air quotes, education that really is like an understanding of society at large. And part of what seems to make Grace really beautiful is that she's a natural in all senses of that term, right? She's... Mm -hmm. You know, she she says what she feels. She's obviously genuine. She's empathetic. But in terms of reading her, she's tough because we don't really get we, – we get almost – I could be mistaken, but from my memory, we get almost no internal monologue, right? We get very little internal life. We get very little, oh, she's thinking one thing, but she's not saying all of it. You know, it seems to be how Grace presents herself as what she feels. She's sad. She doesn't say much. She's happy. She enthuses about the curtains and about the countryside, right? Like that's grace to a T. And it's tough for me to get behind a protagonist like that because she's so white bread. And I really mean that literally and figuratively. There's not much there. She looks good in a hat. We know she's a good figure because obviously Charlotte Edouard would throw her into the <laughs> fucking gutter if she ever dared to stray from that idea. Charlotte Edouard loves all women. And by all, <laughs> there's like a list of caveats after that. All women, as long as they are white, thin, gorgeous, complexion, dimples. <laughs> I, I'd like to add to this that, you know, he, she's like, but why did you marry me? And he's like, well, we're not really married. You know, <laughs> it wasn't in the church. It was at City Hall. He's pretty clear with her that he wants a son. Yeah. For the very beginning. And I, I have a lot of, I have a lot and of And Grace delivers. Grace delivers. <laughs> but yeah, but to, you know, to be fair to him, I guess, to give him his limited credit, he says to her from the very beginning, I want to marry you Tuesday because I want a son and I need a womb for that. <laughs> 
So... But I find I found her a very annoying character as well. But I think it's exactly what you're saying, Naf, is that I think it's not that she's a bad character if you were to delve deeper, but just I don't think she's been particularly well written. So you don't get to kind of go inside. And what you really end up with is quite a kind of accessible... I feel that she's a trope which people can aspire to be like because she's not particularly well read or you know intelligent or witty necessarily but she just has this quality which everybody likes and when people read it they're like oh, I yeah I've got a quality yes yeah. <laughs> um, I'm I'm like that and the flip side of that is that everybody in this book is just like let me explain life to her right. men just want to fuck everything and you either just need to be happy with that or, like, be dumb enough to not notice it. Mm-hmm. And she's like, I'm kind of in the middle. Yeah, like, <laughs> exactly. So what do I do with that? Yeah. I mean, her dad and her dad's friend give her tons of books that are supposed to explain to her France, essentially. And when she's fucking up in French society, we are told in the text, it's too bad she didn't read such and such book because it would have explained everything to her. <laughs> she yeah. would have understood. We are told every second of the day she would have been great if she just read a book. And Grace seems to be steadfastly determined not to read that book and to make a stupid, ugly fucking card. <laughs> How much do I love that, that she's like, she's like, this is going in your bedroom. And he's like, this is going in your bedroom in the country. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was the only, that and when he said I don't like nature were the only two times where I was like, I think I get Charlotte Dwar. Mm-hmm. Like finally I'm getting a little bit of kind of, you know, purchase in this character. I would like to bring in the fact that well, Nancy Mitford was writing this book. She uh, apparently said to Gaston over the telephone, the Charlotte is you to the life. And he gave, as she described later to Evelyn Waugh, a guilty giggle, <laughs> which is very much the Charlotte reaction. At least he had the decency to sound guilty. <laughs> yeah. But for me, his name is also Gaston. So what does a guilty giggle sound like? Mm-hmm. It's... <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> 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 okay, and that brings us to Siji, the living nightmare. Do you know that old Hollywood dictum, never work with animals or children? <laughs> this book explained to me why that fucking is. Because here's what I'll say, begrudgingly, I think this is a very accurate representation of what a child is. That's why we don't have kids in books. They're fucking annoying. Yeah, the problem with children is that they're humans who haven't been socialized yet. And also these two parents, we are shown and told constantly, do not parent, right? When they're in love with each other, they are fucking constantly. And so they just send Siggy out of the room, however you say his fucking name. And so he's like, oh, no one wants to talk to me and I don't know how to read. But Siggy just sucks. I mean, that's really what it is. Yes, he's very much a kid and he's very realistically drawn, But that's why kids are kind of unbearable to read. And that's why we have that equally actually unbearable trope of genius kids, right? We have kids that are hyper articulate and can talk about their feelings because we actually haven't really figured out how to write kids that are realistic. And that won't make you want to just throw the book away and never, ever procreate. But this said, I feel that CG does have this sort of weird adult quality to him. There are certainly some scenes where I, I almost imagine him like, Wearing a smoking jacket and like twiddling his uh, like pointed moustache and sucking a cigar. <laughs> the thing is, that he's not as much a child as he is just an adult tiny psychopath demon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, because the men are off just uh, constantly having sex to make sure they can continue having sex mm-hmm. in the future mm-hmm. and not losing that exactly. power. It's not like riding a bike once you. Once you start, right. you, you can't stop. And so the women have to be constantly prepared and strategizing around this. Right. It's it's that weird double-edged sword of women before we decided, like, a word like feminism could apply. And then we had to, like, figure out what feminism meant. But it was that thing of, like, oh, yeah, men are fucking stupid. Don't get me wrong. But then their stupidity allows them the freedom to just enjoy their fucking lives. We, the smart ones, have to direct them, right? We have to be the generals, but we won't get pay. (laughs) Never mind equal pay. We won't get status. We have to be the silent commanders. And And that really is what seems to be the general kind of French attitude towards courtship, towards love, towards marriage versus the British one, right? Because the French are always mocking the British people in this book for being, yeah, I mean, the men are loyal, but God, so boring, right? And so fidelity is always associated with dullness, with the doldrums. The French are exciting and unreliable. (laughs) So, and can I say also that I do, I mean, we will get into a lot of the issues with this book, but I think that 
Nancy Mitford, in terms of observation, she is so sharp. She is so keen. There are also good, I think there are good sentences. There are good passages. Like it's not, I do think the writing is sometimes there. It's just the overall plot. Yes. Yeah. So uh, almost aside, what I thought was fantastic for was almost being an ethnography of very posh English and French people in this particular time. So, which is interesting because... Obviously- ethnography of posh French and English people in any particular time is Chris's kink. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, actually, I was going to say slightly different in, in this... Maybe I wasn't as charmed as I could have been because there was a part of me which at a certain point was going... Why am I reading this? I mean, obviously it was for, obviously it was for the podcast, but I mean, I mean, like, you know, they're so, they're in a position of such privilege and this rarefied world and their concerns in the grand scheme of things, or even in the scheme of what they're going through seem to be incredibly small. And there is a subtle dismissal of anybody who's not them and I, I think that there is also that there exists kind of like a fetishization in general of this world, and I feel guilty when I'm reading it of buying into that and enjoying that. I, I'm so glad you brought that up, Chris, because so the title, the blessing, refers to Siji Sigi. We're supposed to understand that the blessing is that they they have this child. But I think my central uh, dilemma question with this book is, yeah, it's that question you brought up, Chris. Why are we reading this? In the sense of there doesn't seem to really be a sure hold on what the story is. Siji is there to be an obstacle, right? Basically, the only reason why the book is a novel-length tome is because Siji keeps putting obstacles in their way. So Charles Edouard and Grace don't see each other for a long period of time for basically no fucking reason. There's not much else going on, right? We don't have Grace's interior life. Charles Edouard is a womanizer, point blank, that's it. Everyone else is just there to tell Grace, you're crazy. No one no one is sympathetic towards Grace, towards Grace saying like, I would prefer that I have a husband who doesn't fuck every single fucking woman we see. And everyone's like, oh, Grace, I mean, join us in the current century. There's no one who even someone understands her. And so it is a bit odd. And so I was I was telling um, Rachel and Chris earlier, I watched the movie version of this book, which is also not good. And I think really the reason why it's not good is that, again, there's no real clear understanding of what the story is. So the book tries to kind of, you know, massage the plot so that it works for an audience at the time. I didn't look up how well it did or didn't do. I will say that as it someone... It didn't do great. I was going to say, as someone who's really obsessed with movies, I've never fucking heard of it. <laughs> um, <laughs> which, you know, says something, I think. Um, but I do think that where the book is definitely worth reading and where it excels is, again, these social observations. And one of them that I, in terms of random thoughts, I wanted to bring up was that Madame Rocher. So there are also there are lots of doubles that are unnecessary, but we learn right. that, right? Like, so Charles Edouard has like a grandmother and a great aunt and Madame Rocher is the great aunt. And she's and she is the sassy one. She's our spokesperson for a lot of kind of the the direct, this is what French people are, this is what the British people are. She's the one who gives those statements. And one of the things that comes across is that for the French, we're it's old people that are the focus and young people are really more of the British side. Mm. And at some point, I think someone asks her, I, I don't remember who it was, but they go like, what about the young? Like, what do they do? And she goes, well, they're young. They, do they need to have diversions? Yeah. Is that not enough? Sure, and there's yeah. something kind of wonderful to me, at least about the French characters, especially the French women being like, Oh yeah, life begins at 75, right? Like that's when you really, because Madame Rocher is always being described as being super sexual, even though she's in her mid seventies. And I love, at some point she goes through England and the British, I don't even know what they're, the commission, I don't know, like the prominent British people, they throw a dinner party for her um, and they and they choose the people who are the best at French, but it matters not because Madame Rocher <laughs> wants to practice her English and she spends the whole dinner party enthusing about really normal British things. She's like, I went to Woolworths and it was amazing. Oh my God. I love, I love, I love, I love. And then the British people are like waiting to hear like about like, you know, a really unique French modiste who's on this British street. She's like, oh, what I really, I mean, imagine someone coming to America and being like, I saw this store, uh, Marta. It was so, that's really what she's doing. She's having the best time and she will not let anyone get a word in. She's speaking only in English. There are these moments that are so great. And I will say also the Freemason thing. 
That's a real fucking thing. The French are still really suspicious of Freemasons. So I have, this was my last point in terms of the fun of Nancy Mitford, which is that, uh, yeah, she's clearly stretching to make this from a film treatment to a full-length novel. And so I'd say 20% of the book is devoted to the French just being like, her father's a Freemason. Oh my God, she's the devil. She's a Satan worshiper. Grace's, Grace's father is the Freemason. Yes, right. Just to uh, to go back to your point, though, Naf, about the, the kind of like the age differential and kind of the, the older people having more fun. So I have confession here a little bit of experience of very high class english life and i would say older women (laughs) (laughs) and bourgeois french life so with regard to the bourgeois french life that was definitely my experience hanging around with them even this would have been in like 2008 2009 And I was obviously part of the kids at that stage and being well aware that we were just allowed to kind of go off and no one cared what we were doing. And definitely the adults were just like drinking loads more. There was so much more sexual intrigue going on among them. They had no interest in anything that we were doing. All of the events and parties that we went to were all super adult focused. So it's still really is a thing i think in in at least semi-modern france probably is still going on now and then just completely different another point that i think i I love and i think it says so much about like english sort of super upper classness is that one of the cardinal sins in this book and i would guess any mitford book is being a bore like you you don't want to be boring like being boring is the worst thing and i think there's a huge amount to unpack as what it means to be a bore on a certain level it's because basically these people don't actually have jobs Um, (laughs) and so no 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 their jobs are honorable yes (laughs) and charlotte wall is a mayor (laughs) don't forget That is easily missed. That's like one page where he comes back and they're like, oh, you're the mayor. You have to give an award. I have a meeting. I am a mayor. (laughs) It's like when when people don't have jobs, um, they just have to be super interesting with one another all the time because they don't have anything to take up their time. So the moment that their time starts being boring uh, or they start being bored by somebody who has a job, uh, they're like, what a bore. But I think... I think there's also, I think my favourite line actually in the whole book, because I think there's actually a whole moral dimension to being a bore. And Charles Edouard has a lawyer friend, or he has his lawyer, who was a a collaborator during the war. And uh, Charles Edouard goes, oh, God, there's no bore like a collabo. (laughs) Because this guy is constantly apologising about being a collaborator. (laughs) And he's like, oh, just get over it. But it's, it is more than that because he's also, this lawyer has done something wrong, which in good society, you wouldn't have been a collaborator. And so, you know, being a collaborator literally is being a bore. So it, it does mean something a little bit more than being boring. It's a whole moral philosophy, I think, that they have launched. Yeah, that's really true. Like, it's, and that makes me think also about how the war functions in this book. Mm. It is both everywhere and nowhere. Mm. Like, one of the things that we are told and shown again and again is how rich France is versus how poor Britain is. In France, the meat kind of overspills the windows, right? Nanny goes back to France and tells all the other nannies at Hyde Park, oh my God, I mean, the awful was everywhere. And I mean- Is that what nanny sounds like? Oh, I couldn't. I, I, I wonder. Could you? How would you do nanny? You know I can't do accents. I actually I... have no idea. Um, oh, my God. The opera <laughs> was everywhere. I don't think she sounds. Because, because my favorite thing that nanny says is to, to all the other nannies in Hyde Park is, God, there was meat everywhere, et cetera, et cetera. But the problem is in France, there are no good cooks. <laughs> everyone's like, oh, man. I will say that in this book, we are never wondering Oh, I wonder who Nancy Mitford likes or dislikes for her characters, right? You know, the minute we meet Heck, you're like, oh, they must be terrible. Like, she but, but, but tell me this, who does she like? She loves Grace. No, she she, she knows Grace is stupid. She does, but she likes her. Charlotte Edouard, definitely. Yeah, but like, she's super horny for Charlotte Edouard. No, but Charlotte Edouard is, is uh, I mean, inexplicably the best character. I'm not the best character. He's, he's the goody, inexplicably. Because I was going to say, do you think that, for both of you, do you think that this book, now that you've told us, Rachel, that, like, you know, Nancy Mitford had her affair with Gaston, 
And from the very little that I've listened to about this, he was a serial cheater as well. Is this book a little bit supposed to be a defense of her not leaving Gaston earlier? Like, is that is that why we're kind of struggling to find a story? Is it kind of just a book length version of, and that's why I have not left my French lover, even though I don't know. That sounds like the kind of book that a bore would write, actually. <laughs> and Nancy, you are not a bore. <laughs> you are many things, I believe, but you are not a bore. Well, that was this week's love story. Stay tuned to find out which characters from this book we would marry, fuck, and kill. And now it's time for our favorite segment, Marry, Fuck, Kill. This week, we're taking characters from the very flawed book, The Blessing by Nancy Mitford, to decide which of them we would marry, fuck, and kill. So I am giving you guys the choice among Charlotte Ward's women. Ooh. You have to marry, fuck, and kill Grace, Juliette, and Albertine. Oh, God. Okay. As a refresher, uh, Albertine is a wealthy, sophisticated widow who, it's important to add, had the same wet nurse as Charles Edouard. Juliet, a beautiful 19 or 20-year-old with a car. Or Grace, the novel's nice but dim protagonist. Yeah, it's not great. Okay, okay. <laughs> I feel this is a minefield. I will say, I think I've got my my Mary, I've got, it's the fuck and the kill that I'm really hesitating about. Well, who's the Mary? Albertine, definitely. Okay. The only person I want to live with is the funny, witty, sexy one. Who won't stop talking about how you shared the same breast? Yeah, you know what? I'm okay so, with that. Yeah. Oh, we are Charles Edouard in this situation. No, you're you. Oh, and then in which case it doesn't even... Because she's the only... Oh, yeah, I guess in this case you wouldn't have known. So she will be having a relationship with Charles Edouard, though. So here's the thing. So on the one hand, I'd have to accept that, of course, Albertine's sleeping with other people. But then if I'm also, like, fucking other people, then it doesn't matter as much. She's the only one who seems to have a brain. She's funny. She's smart. And then, yeah, we've got these other two where... I mean, the other one can drive, so maybe I'd fuck her. <laughs> so she, It's one of my top turner. So she can get me to Albertine's faster. Yeah. I don't drive, so that's important. And then kill Grace. Taxis. They're taxis. And now they're there's Uber. Oh, so oh, can they come to like modern times? Or we don't Oh, I thought it's like I, I thought I had to stay within the realm or the time period of the book. I mean, I think we do have Ubers. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm still thinking, Chris, what do you think? Or Rachel, like what do you guys think? As I say, I think this is a, a it's it's a difficult one. I think that Grace so I'm, I'm going to, like, search for something which isn't really in the text, which is that I think that Grace is actually written down a little bit as a character in not being particularly intellectual or well-read or funny. I actually think that she is certainly pretty smart. She's certainly read, you know, some things. She's just not, like, obsessed with this sort of intellectual one-upmanship which is going on. And... As I say, if you really kind of look almost under the text, I think she's definitely the nicest character who's out there because yes. just because everybody likes her in the book, mm -hmm. she seems like, you know, honest and good. And uh, she seems to kind of come from a, a nice place and doesn't have any malice in her particularly. So for that, I would marry Grace Probably fuck Albertine because I think that she uh, she seems like she's probably spent um, most of her life just sort of dedicated to like really she's been learning a lot of things and I imagine one of those things would be just how to be a great lay. Yeah, um, <laughs> she's like an expert. And then uh, Juliet, I'm sure she's really hot, but just hasn't put in the time. That <laughs> she doesn't have her ten thousand hours. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know what i think i that really solidifies for me i would definitely marry albertine because i think she would be my friend i think i would i'd love to just hang out with her i i i'd like her well in this scenario i'm assuming that i'm also her best friend so she would love me and she would you know be super like in the same way that she's with charles Edouard, right like she's loyal to the end i would fuck grace because she's 
she's really nice and that'd be great <laughs> and yeah i'd kill <laughs> being really nice more of a turn on than having a car because honestly juliet like besides her having a car what are her other attributes for me same reasons as chris i'm marrying grace <laughs> where would you put the rug that grace has made there we go thank you um you put it under the bed to the point where you can't see see it mm-hmm. so like it's under the four corners of the bed yeah. and then the covers yeah. like cover it um and you're just like oh but it's under the bed it's the place of honor right i'm <laughs> ruining grace's psyche <laughs> but uh I, I feel like i could do it and uh my life would be bearable i'm going to fuck juliet i think juliet is a very enthusiastic lover i agree to just me, enthusiastic albertine seems very like, too polished. Like, so she's dear. doing it. Like, I don't think she's getting off. I don't know why she's doing, you know, all of these men. I think it's a power play on her part of some sort. But she doesn't seem to enjoy it. She has a lot of theories about it. She's mm-hmm. very cerebral about it. Mm-hmm. Whereas Juliet is just kind of like, oh, it's a, it's a man with a penis. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. You do I, make a good case for Juliet. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure I can make a case for her, to be honest. I mean, I don't, I'm also not a man with a penis, so I don't, I can't uh, say that she'd be particularly attracted to me. But um, I do think that she would be really fun. I think she's one of those women who like kind of squeaks when she's coming. Yes. And that would be very uh, enjoyable in a way because men don't really do that. One of those women. Do you remember when? I've seen them in the movies. So (laughs) for the ball, Everyone has to bring a child. So first of all, this is why I'm marrying Albertine, because what a bizarre, <laughs> really weird thing. Because she's like, what kind of ball can Juliet not come to? Exactly. So already I'm like, thank you, you're on my side. And Juliet goes, oh, let's bring a child. And her husband goes, you're the one who didn't want to have kids. And I just, there's something about that that I'm like, Juliet, yeah, you really did not think far ahead enough. <laughs> Albertine is way ahead of you. She already... I think she killed her husband. I think that's why she's a really rich widow. And then Juliet tries to bring the the like building the manager's yeah. child. And Albertine just is immediately like, no, I've seen that child picking its yeah. nose in the courtyard. And she definitely uses it. Thank you. <laughs> that's what I was going to say. She definitely uses the pronoun it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, well... We've decided, and I think two of us are going to be competing for Grace, mm-hmm. and Albertine is going to be with her best friend slash lover not forever, and yeah. that's not a party I don't want to attend. She will not let me participate in this podcast anymore. She <laughs> says it's only for petit bourgeois. I don't really understand what that means. I'm so sorry, but I, yeah, I'm in love. Tell her we're tell her we're not making any money. <laughs> that, but I love her. I love her so hard. One boob, one love. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Mary Fuck Kill. (laughs) One boob, one love. Let's get together and nipple all right. That was this week's episode of We'll Always Have Paris. Join us next time when we'll be discussing Bernardo Bertolucci's infamous Last Tango in Paris and its questionable eroticism. Thanks for joining us and see you next week. <laughs>